Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, the first chapter. There's some extra Bibles on the back pews if anyone needs them, right? And scattered around, you'll find them. The book of Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all written by Moses. Now then, before we start reading, I want to give you a little introduction of some of this information you may find interesting and some not, but uh, the geography of Exodus, if you took a narrow view of Egypt, it shows a river, the River Nile, with desert on each side, 115,000 square miles and 9,000 inhabited square miles and 5,000 fertile lands. And the Nile branches off and is called the Delta of the Nile, and the Nile pushes the fertile soil to the deltas on every side, you know, wherein lies the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel settled, especially. Egypt is the home, of course, of the great pyramids, and they were built by slave labor. The king of Egypt had canals dug from the Nile and reservoirs in the deltas, which would fill the Nile, uh, which would fill when the Nile overflowed. And uh, the material... For the history of Moses, we find the religious condition of Israel in the time of Moses. They had a revelation handed down from Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And evidently, Moses had a direct revelation of God. They retained the ritual of circumcision. They kept the act of offering sacrifices. They kept the Sabbath day. They gave their children names with spiritual meaning. And the religion of Egypt itself, they believed in one God, but they taught the manifestation that under that one God, uh, polytheism, uh, really many gods. And under the forms of one God, they worshipped the Nile River. Now, we're talking about the religion of Egypt. They worshipped the Nile River and animals and various things as idols. And Moses was a very highly educated man. And then... Uh, what kind of people were Israel? They were tent dwellers, but became house dwellers. There were 600,000 men over 20 years of age when they came out of Egypt. That's over a half million people of the over 20 years of age. And remember, they went down with only 70 souls, and we'll read the first chapter in just a moment. I'm just giving you this to kind of give you an overview uh, and an idea of what took place. They went down to 70,000, I mean 70 souls, and they came out with 600,000. Of course, they were there 400 years. So there's a lot of people can be born in 400 years. And anyway, uh, there were really over 3 million people because there were, there were a, a multitude of great, of a mixed multitude that came out with the children of Israel when they were delivered. And also, there were uh, the children or the people from 20 years old and under, but there were uh, 600,000 men that were 20 years of age and upward. Uh, there are many chapter titles, and I won't give you all the chapter titles. Well, I will in a sense. I'll give you an overview of it, and then you can know what we'll find in each one. Chapter 1, we find Israel in bondage. And chapter uh, 2 is the birth of a deliverer and his rejection of a nation. In chapter 3, you find the call and the commission of Moses. In chapter 4, you have his credentials as the deliverer. In chapter 5, you have a conflict between Pharaoh and Moses. 
as it begins. Now then, in chapters 6 through 11, you have a list of judgments that I gave you. In chapters 6 through 11, if you look at that chart I gave you, all of these ten judgments, along with four compromises that were made. And so if you wanted to center on the first five chapters and kind of book them together, and then chapters 6 through 11, and look at that little chart I gave you, you'll see that there's ten judgments that takes place from in those chapters, and there's also four compromises that uh, Pharaoh tries to make with uh, Moses, and of course it doesn't work too much because men of God do, you not, do not usually compromise anything if they stand for what God believes, what God teaches. And then we find chapter 12 is the Passover, chapter 13 is the sanctification of the firstborn, chapter 15 is crossing of the Red Sea, uh, I mean 14 is the crossing of the Red Sea, chapter 15 is the song of redemption, chapter 16 you find the manna that God sent down from heaven, none of this is on your chart by the way, and uh, then uh, chapter 17 is water from the rock and war with Amalek. Chapter 18, the millennium. Chapter 19, Israel comes to Sinai. Chapter 20 is the giving of the law. And there you have the Ten Commandments that I gave you on that chart. The Ten Commandments. And then chapters 21 through 23, you have different laws for God's people. And uh, chapter 24, Moses in the mount. And then from chapters 25 through 40, you have the tabernacle, materials for the tabernacle, and by the way, you have those on that chart. So, the three important things that you'll find, the most uh, great importance, I gave you on that chart. And there are other titles for the remainder of the chapters, but we won't get, take time to give you those. Now then, I do want to remind you that uh, we have studied the tabernacle, which would... Look at this little paper I gave you now. We have studied the tabernacle, which has to do with these different materials for the tabernacle down here. And when we come to that 25th chapter, I might rehearse the meaning of those uh, things there for you. But the first thing you'll find, this is, this is in order as you'll find it in the book of Exodus. You'll find the Ten Judgments that come upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. You'll find the Ten Commandments, and then you'll find these materials for the tabernacle. And basically, that'll give even if even if you just had this much, you've got an idea of what the book is about. You've got an idea of what it's all about, and that's what we're trying to do tonight: is get you familiar with the book of Exodus. Now, then, this first lesson is not going to go as fast because I'm going to cover the cha first chapter probably more in detail than I will the rest of it because of the importance of it. And we said this first chapter shows us Israel in bondage, didn't we? Israel in bondage. If you'll remember, the book of Exodus left off with Joseph and all his brethren down in Egypt, and then Jacob dies and Joseph dies, and so that all the descendants of Jacob are in Egypt due to the famine that brought them there. And that is the setting for the book of Exodus. And then when we read the first chapter, it will become clear why... That, uh, that is the setting because we're going to find another king instead of the king being favorable to Joseph as he was previous in the book of Genesis we're going to find another king arose that knew not Joseph and then he began to oppress and bring the people into bondage now let's look at the first chapter 
It says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob. It says, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And, and all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. So you have seventy souls, including Joseph. And then you come down to verse 6, and it says, And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. Now, we're told of the death of Joseph in the last chapter of Genesis, aren't we? We just had that in our last lesson. In verse 7, And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Already, the land was filled with them. Now there arose an, up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasures, treasure cities, Pith, uh, Python, and Ramses. Uh, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. They were slaves, they were servants. And they made them make bricks. And they made them uh, bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of the service of, in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. In other words, they were really being oppressed and persecuted and, and made to work hard without any consideration. And they really had them as servants and slaves in Egypt. In verse 15, And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shephra, and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When, do you, when you do the office of a midwife uh, to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. Now they were determined to kill all of the male children that were born. Now talk about oppression and slavery and and uh, persecution. God's people were being persecuted in the land of Egypt where they, before they had been treated with favor and with many blessings and were honored uh, when uh, Joseph was in power. Remember, Joseph kept the people from all perishing with hunger during the famine. And Joseph had taken care and was made, made uh, over all the land of Egypt, made, was made ruler by the previous Pharaoh, the king. And now this new king that knew not Joseph began to oppress the people, bring them into bondage, make them uh, serve with rigor. And, and uh, then it says in verse uh, 17, But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. Uh, and the king of Egypt was, uh, and the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, uh, Why have ye done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwife said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. 
Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. God, uh, in his providence, took care of these uh, that spared uh, the lives of the young baby boys that were to be killed. And so God, in his providence, took care of these midwives. They were under the sentence of uh, judgment. And it says in verse 22, And Pharaoh charged all his people. Now here's his charge. Charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Now you see, this was the idea of the Pharaoh to keep the children of Israel from multiplying because he was afraid that they would become so mighty that they would rebel against them and and uh, overcome the Egyptians. And that was his purpose. Now then... If you notice back in verse 1, it says, These are the names of the children of Israel. And we gave you those names. You know, we're reminded that God watches over uh, the, the journeys of His people. They were down in Egypt, and Egypt is a type of the world. And there's actually no place in the world for the people of God. And you know, the sooner you and I figure that out, the better off we're going to be. The world in its wickedness and its opposition is not a friend to the people of God. We're in the world, but not of it. We have to live in this society, but the thing about it is, we have to learn that there's much opposition against God's work and God's people. And there's no place in Egypt for the people of God. Egypt is a source of temptation for the people of God. And Egypt seeks to keep God's people in bondage. Does the world offer you deliverance and freedom? No. It offers you bondage. And we should never journey into Egypt without a clear indication of God's will and how to get out of it. Humanity is in bondage right now. It's in bondage to sin. It's in bondage to habit. It's in bondage to self. And it's in bondage to Satan. We find that as we read those names, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, and all these other names that were before, that God knows the children of His family. He calls them all by name. Remember in the New Testament, the Bible says that Jesus, the Good Shepherd, calleth His own sheep by name. And He knows their mental peculiarities. He knows their moral character. And he knows their general disposition. Did you know God knows our peculiarities? God knows our character, our moral character. You don't have to tell God whether you're uh, morally upright and you're doing the right thing or not. God knows. And he knows our general disposition. And we should act as people of God as well. They had the number of the souls and we've already dealt with that. We find on down that Joseph had died and all of his brethren uh, and all that generation of his uh, generation had died and Jacob had died. And it indicates to you and I that God notes the death of his children. God put it down here in Exodus chapter 1 that Joseph was dead and that uh, this was a new generation of the descendants of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Joseph. And these, uh, actually, the children of Israel means the children of Jacob. All the sons of Jacob and all their descendants. Because Jacob was named Israel. You need to get that straight in your mind. 
Jacob was named Israel. And when we speak of the children of Israel, we speak of the descendants of Jacob. And of course, Joseph was one special one of his sons. God appoints the death of his children, and God permits the death of his children. Death removes the most useful among men. Joseph was the most useful one of that whole group, wasn't he? And yet, although men die, God's cause goes on, because God is eternal. And a leader may pass on, but the church continues to be. You know, we've seen through, the, through this day and age of the church, we've seen years and years since the time of Jesus, the apostles and then great uh, uh, followers of the apostles and great preachers and faithful brethren and Christians through the ages and faithful preachers through the ages have, have stood by the word of truth and they die and yet the church still lives, doesn't it? And the truth still lives. And God's Word still lives. And when we're all dead and gone, it will still live. Because Jesus said that uh, upon this rock, upon Himself, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So a leader may pass on. The family of Israel was a tried family. They were tried by bereavement. Remember all the things that happened to the children of Israel? All the deaths, and Rachel died, and and the old... Uh, Jacob was uh, so uh, discouraged and downhearted. And, of course, when, when Rachel died, Benjamin was born. And she called uh, the name of Benjamin Benoah, which means the son of my sorrow. And, and old Jacob says, no, I'll call him Benjamin, which is the son of my right hand. Right? And so everything is looked upon from a different viewpoint. It all depends on whether you're looking up or down. <laughs> it said concerning a couple of fellows in prison one time. Two men, two men looked through prison bars. One saw mud and the other saw stars. So which way are you looking? And we just need to look up, don't we? Get our eyes on the Lord and things will be better. And let's not look down and be discouraged. And so these people were tried by bereavement. They were tried by discord. They were tried by famine. And yet they overcame all of these things. You find that the Bible says a new king arose that knew not Joseph. Rulers of nations are usually out of sympathy with the people of God and with the purpose of God and with the providence of God. This new king that knew not Joseph was out of sympathy. And by the way, a lot of this world is out of sympathy with the people of God and with the purpose of God and with the providence of God. And if you don't think you'll find that out, you get out and mingle with people that are just after the dollar and after their own benefit and after their own profit and are after greed, and you find them acting different than Christian brothers and sisters because we love one another and care for one another. But it's not always true with all of society. We'll find much of society doesn't care. In verse 9 it says, And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel more and mightier than we. More and mightier than we. Did you know a godless nation, as Pharaoh and the Egyptians, is envious and suspicious of the increase of the number of the people of God? And a godless world will try to influence the people of God by its splendor. And a godless world envies the influence of the people of God. If you and I have any influence in the world, they envy that. They don't want us to have any influence. 
And a godless world will try to terrify the people of God by its power. And a godless world will try to corrupt the people of God through its flattery. And a godless world flies into the face of Almighty God in seeking to keep God's people from growing. You see, this new king did not want them to grow. He didn't want them to multiply. He didn't want them to prosper. He wanted to keep them in bondage. In verse 10, he says, Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so uh, get them up out of the land. This was his purpose. He says, they're going to multiply and they're going to fight in a, against us. And he says, let us deal wisely. They're very crafty in their design upon the people of God. And a godless world does not want to lose the people of God, but wants to control them, to use them for its own purpose. You know, if the world can use the church to do what it wants done, the church is fine. But when you start being what you ought to be, a spiritual testimony and a lighthouse and separate from the world, and the Bible says that the church is separate, it says, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, then you have no sympathy from them. A godless world seeks to place the people of God under obligation to it. They want you to be obligated to the world. A godless world cannot match the wisdom of the Almighty God. They thought they had it all figured out. You know, this, this Pharaoh, this king says, okay, what we'll do. Here was his wise and crafty plan. He says, in order to keep them in bondage, in order to keep them from multiplying, what will we do? We'll kill them all. We'll kill all the male children. We'll have every baby that's, a male baby that's born killed. And we'll kill, keep the female babies. I guess they wanted to keep them for service and other things. But you see, they wanted to stop the multiplication and they wanted to stop any growth and they wanted to uh, control. And they set these taskmasters over them to afflict them with many birds and they built all these, these cities. A godless world seeks to make the existence of the people of God hard and bitter. You know, that's why Christians out here trying to be honest and trying to live the right kind of life and trying to serve the Lord at the same time and trying to, to work for a living receive all kinds of opposition from the worldly. And you don't think if you don't think that's true, you get out and you try to work for ungodly men and they don't have any sympathy for you or any care about you. All they want is what they get. And it's no concern of, as to whether you live or die. They could care less, as long as you're able to work, as long as you're able to serve. And we better figure that out if you haven't already figured it out. They want to make the existence of God's people hard and bitter. You know, I would love to see a world where you find old... You remember the story of Ruth? Ruth and Naomi? And they were out there gleaning in the field of Boaz back in the book of Ruth. And old Boaz comes out and his servants are out there in the field and they're harvesting and they're working hard. And he said, The Lord be with thee. The Lord bless thee. Can you imagine the employer walking into your shop of a morning and say, God be with you folks. Or, Good morning. God bless you all. Can you imagine someone in authority or power walking in and greeting his people with care and love? It's kind of unusual, isn't it? And Boaz did that. Boaz did that. But we have yet to see a worldly person 
that will show any sympathy or care or concern whatsoever. Get to work. You're about, in two minutes, the bell's going to ring. Well, it's, it's good to be punctual. There's nothing wrong with that. I think people ought to be on time. I think it's the duty of a Christian, if he's working for someone, to be there on time and to do his work. But on the other hand, there should be some concern from those that are in authority about other people. A godless world is cruel in its requirement of the people of God. And a godless world is the best training ground for the people of God. We've lost sight of the fact that it's good for us in some ways. It makes us realize where our real blessings come from. And a godless world is unconscious of the fact that in oppressing the people of God, they're fighting God Himself. Now, you may oppress God's people, and you may find that the, the godless world will oppress God's people, but they're fighting against God because God is for His people. And don't ever forget that. Remember when old Saul, Saul of Tarsus, what was happening? He was going about persecuting Christians. He was putting them in prison. And he was doing everything. And some of them were being killed. All kinds of things. He had a murderous spirit and an injurious spirit. And what happened? When Jesus met him on the road to Damascus in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He took it as a personal offense. And listen, when you treat God's people wrong, you're treating God wrong. And God's going to take it personal because they're His sheep and they're His people. And uh, uh, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus, so he thought. But yet Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And so when you're persecuting God's people, you're persecuting Him. And the same thing holds true in the Old Testament when Moses, when they got mad at Moses and said, Moses, you this and that and the other, and accused him of everything, they were persecuting God as well and rejecting God. A godless world comes to abhor the people of God, and the world also sees the people of God most in persecution. No effort of man can thwart the purpose of God. You can't change that. It didn't make any difference how determined this king was. It didn't make any difference if his whole idea was to completely destroy Israel and all of the descendants and keep them from prospering and growing. There's no effort that he could put forth. The devil can't put forth any effort to overrule the purpose of God. It's going to be carried out. And affliction is meant to prove God's power over evil, by the way. And God is with His people even in affliction. When they were being afflicted, the Bible says the more... Now listen carefully. The more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and grew. Sometimes it it just works out the best for us when we have to undergo some hardships. The more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and grew. That's the same true with the early church, wasn't it? The more they persecuted the early church, the more that they, they grew and multiplied with converts and with people that were uh, following them. Verse 13, The Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they were trying to promise them that they were going to have all they needed. 
and they were trying to make a bargain through the midwives and say, now look, we want you to save these uh, girl babies but kill all the boy babies. But their bargain was cruel, wasn't it? They promise some liberty, but they give chains. It's like sin. You serve sin and it will master you. And you serve sin and you work the purpose of Satan. And if you serve sin, you disprove the understanding. And if you serve sin, you, you pervert the will. And if you serve sin, you also corrupt the affections. And if you serve sin... And enter a helpless and universal bondage is what you'll do. Verse 14 says, They made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and all matter of service of the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. This world imposes upon the people of God intolerable servitude. It's not bad to be of service, but when it's intolerable, it's different. And a godless world fills the life of the people of God with grief. It causes you to grieve. And it gives the people of God hard work to do. And it degrades as far as possible. No one work, wants to work and be degraded all the time. You need to be lifted up. A godless world makes the people of God hate it and long to be freed from it. You know, no wonder uh, the Bible teaches that we have a longing for a heavenly Canaan because the world has made it so hard sometimes for us to live in this world. And a godless world makes the people of God pray for deliverance. That's what they were doing. They cried unto the Lord and God heard them. God says, I heard your cry. In the next chapter we'll find where God tells them that, that he's going to come down and he sends them a deliverance after the birth of Moses. And this is the one that God had chosen. It says in uh, verse 15 and 16, The king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shephra and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When you do the office of midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stool, if it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. Now then, a godless world develops a murderous spirit toward God's people. And it also uses high social position to accomplish, it, accomplish its designs upon the people of God. And a godless world can furnish no fellowship, no fellowship whatsoever for the people of God. If you find people that are ungodly and that are not Christian, you are not going to have any Christian fellowship with a non-Christian. It's just not possible. And a godless world admits its weakness, the weakness of its cause, by persecuting the people of God. You know the reason Christians are persecuted from time to time? Because the world knows that all they, all they, they can hold over them is the world. God, God's going to overrule the world's workings. And in due time, God's people are going to be delivered, and they were in Egypt. And they cannot prevent the progress of the people of God, nor... Uh, uh, the accomplishment of the purpose of God. You cannot stop that. You know, you saw how these midwives feared God. It says that they feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded. That was in verse 17. 
And this fear of God is a reverent fear. It's a reverential trust with a hatred of the evil that was being imposed upon them. God's people are not to do wrong because others demand it. Just because someone wants you to do wrong doesn't mean you have to do it. We better make up our own minds to stick to the right regardless, even if the world uh, is almost uh, enforcing wrong upon us. And God's people are to recognize that God alone is the sovereign of the soul. That's why these midwives would not put to death these male children. Every time they could save one alive, they'd save them alive. It doesn't mean that some of them were not caught in the act, but every time they could save one, they'd save it. And God prospered them even in disobeying the king's command because anyone is not called upon to murder someone else or to kill someone else. It's kind of like the abortion today. Kill all the babies. Well, that's uh, God's people should stand against abortion. Well, young ladies are to have their children, to raise them up. And regardless of, I know there may be some isolated incidents where you'll find something necessary of that uh, nature. But uh, still, basically and overall, the general practice is to bring that child into the world and to raise it up and bring it up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because it's a child, it's a baby, and it belongs to God. And the, uh, God's people are to recognize that God is sovereign in these matters. And they're also to be obst- uh, not to be obstinate and stubborn, but to be conscientious. We're not to be obstinate about everything or stubborn about everything, but we are to be conscientious about everything. And the fear of God will keep back men from the most detestable sins. If we trust in God and reverence God, it will keep us back from most detestable sins that we might be tempted to, to uh, commit. And the fear of God will humble believers courage to resist wrong. It will make us want to resist wrong. It will give us courage to res- uh, resist wrong if we fear God reverently. We're not talking about being afraid of God now. We're talking about a reverential fear. And the fear of God is the master of all other fears. If we fear God, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. And so that's the beginning place. If it's the beginning of uh, things, it will master all other fears that may come to us. And the fear of God provides friends for the people of God who can outwit the enemies of His people. There will always be a few that will stick with you. And it will disappoint all the world in its hopes against the people of God. We'll find uh, down in verse 20, Therefore God dealt well with, well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. You know why? Because God's providence works for the reward of His people and re- works for the reward of the righteous. And the Bible says that all things, even this, all things work together for good to them that love God. They dealt uh, well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. Why? Because God's providence was working uh, for them. And regardless of the Pharaoh, and regardless of all the edicts that came out, God has a reward for them. And God will see to it that men do not lose by facing the opposition that they come up against. And God is pleased uh, with those who who protect his people. God was pleased with these midwives. 
And God is pleased with those who protect his people. This fear of God brings divine protection. Reverence to God brings divine protection. Someone says, I want, I want protection. Where are you going to get it? From the world? From the courts? From the, from the land? Well, we hope there's still some justice left. But your real protection is divine protection in the midst of it all. Because God has to control even those situations to bring about the right decisions. God builds a house, a spiritual and an eternal house, for those who uh, fear Him. And you know, the last verse says, And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And this shows that a godless world is set in a course directly opposed to God. And it's destined to utter destruction in its opposition toward God. You can't just keep on opposing God and expect that there will be success. Now then, I've tried to give you some details of the setting of this bondage in chapter 1. And when we study chapter 2, we're going to see the birth of a deliverer. We're going to see uh, the calling of, a de- a, of Moses from God and the commission. And we'll look in chapter 2 right now, just briefly. And then we'll get on to uh, what happened concerning Moses. And then on down in chapter 6 through 11, we'll see these ten judgments and plagues that come upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians in God's way to deliver the children of Israel from bondage. And things will be grouped together more so than in this first introductory chapter. But I wanted to give you that and show that this opposition... This bondage of the children of Israel. And I made so many statements to show you how real and how genuine it really was. In fact, if we read it just scarcely or read it quickly, we fail to realize that these people were in bitter bondage. They had made them to serve with rigor. And there was a murderous spirit against them. And they did not want them to multiply. They didn't want them to grow. They didn't want them to prosper. They didn't want them to have any freedom. And they were very sorely oppressed. And we'll find later on where they cried to the Lord by reason of their bitter bondage. And God says, I'm going to do something about it. And He does. In chapter 2, He begins beforehand, before the crying goes out, uh, in such a way as to prepare for them a deliverer. Look in chapter 2. There went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. This was baby Moses. When she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. Now remember, this baby boy was supposed to be killed, right? He was supposed to be killed just upon birth. Not permitted to live a day. To be done away with. But this male child that was born escaped the uh, wrath of the Pharaoh. And through God's, in God's providence, here's what happened. The mother, she laid him in last part of verse 3 in the flags by the river's brink. In this little ark that she made of bulrushes and daubed it with that in and without with slime and pitch. And his sister stood afar off. This is Miriam. 
She stood afar off to see what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down. Now here's Pharaoh's daughter who knows well the edict that has gone out. She knows well that, this, that any a Hebrew child, male child, is to be killed. But here comes Pharaoh's daughter. You think God doesn't have a way in providence? Came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along by the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. Now look. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. You see, God is working in providence to cause this daughter of Pharaoh, evidently she was without children, and she needed this uh, baby. And the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, what was she doing? She's saying, Now, I know that my father has made an edict that all these male children of the Hebrews be killed. said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, if she had been real faithful to her father, she'd have gone in and she'd said, Now, look, uh, this is what we're going to do because this, uh, this is one of the Hebrews' children. We, we're going to have to turn it over to uh, the authorities and they'll do away with it. But that's not her attitude because God had changed her attitude. She had compassion on him. Verse 7 says, Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go call thee a nurse to, of the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for thee? You know, this is a word fitly spoken at the right time, isn't it? Moses' sister, Miriam, suggests to Pharaoh's daughter, says, do you want me to go and get a Hebrew nurse? Do you want me to get a nurse of the Hebrew women to take care of it? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. So it returned baby Moses back to his own mother to take care of him, to nurse him. You see how God works? God is preparing for Israel to deliver. And nothing of Pharaoh's a murderous spirit could thwart the purpose of God. We stated that in the first chapter. And could keep the children of Israel in bondage. And regardless of what a person does, you can try to disrupt the plan and purpose of God and you're just spinning your wheels, friend. Because God is going to see to it that He carries out His will. And the Bible says He worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. We look at weak, wicked nations and rulers and leaders all over the world and say, well, they're oppressing people here and there's dictators there. There's governments there that are wicked and mean governments and there's violence and there's crime and all this stuff. And yet God says it's not going to stand because He has a way of ruling, of setting up kings and removing kings. You read it in the book of Daniel. He's the one that setteth up kings and removeth kings. He's the one that is sovereign in this universe. You say, well then, preacher, why does he permit all these things? He's going to overrule it, and he does overrule it from time to time in his own way to make it come back to status quo. And he will do that as far as Israel is concerned. They were in freedom before, and he says, I'm going to bring you out. Joseph says, God's going to visit you and deliver you, and when when he does, I want you to carry my bones up with you out of Egypt. Remember, they took Joseph and they embalmed him. They put him in a coffin, but they didn't bury him. They waited until the time. We don't know where it was located. We don't know what kind of a place it was kept in. But he was not buried with Jacob and the others because he said he predicted that God would deliver the children of Israel and he would uh, take them out from this bondage. And so 
uh, baby Moses had returned to his own mother to take care of him. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. She even got paid for it. She probably wasn't getting paid for it before. I mean, if they're poor and oppressed and they, they were barely getting along as slaves and servants, and now she's going to get paid for taking care of her own kid, right? Her own child. Little baby boy. You see how God works things out? And there's no way to outwit God. We stated that in the first chapter. Regardless of all the bondage and all the bitterness and all the murder spirit and all the uh, conniving and all the craft of the Pharaoh and all of his edicts, you cannot outrule and overturn the purpose and plan of God. And this is only the beginning of it. We'll have to read the remainder of it. We'll read the verse 10 and 11 and have to close for tonight. But we'll pick up and we'll cover a greater scope and in a more broad sense in our next lesson. But I will read verse 10 and 11. The child grew and she brought him uh, un, uh, unto Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she called his name Moses. And Moses means drawn out. And she said, because I drew him out of the water. And we'll stop there. Chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord willing, we'll pick up there next Wednesday night and we'll try to not give you so much detail. I wanted to give you enough of the bondage. I wanted to give you enough of the of the setting and enough of the introduction that you know what we're faced with. And then knowing that, we'll cover it in a, in a, a quicker and broader scope uh, as we deal with these plagues and these judgments, the law and the things of the tabernacle which we've already covered 